Good morning, my name is Melinda Carlson. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us, each, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The word of the Lord. Good morning again. Let's pray. Dear God, we come and uh, thank you for rain, which we need, and for shelter and safety and the chance to be together. Many of us bring in uh, all kinds of rain in our hearts, maybe, this morning, things that are weighing us down. Some of us might come in joyful and thankful, but we do come together. So we gather each other up as we pray. We lift up one another and we ask that you would guide and speak to us, that you would form your people as we're together and you would do your work. That as we pray at the end of the service, you would send us out with strength and courage to love and serve you. In your holy name, amen. Amen. It is hard to be up here as quirky did and not be affected by the scenery. I feel like this is a, for those of you who are Narnia fans, doesn't this feel like a particularly Pevensey kind of corner? Like, got a lamppost, got a trunk maybe for the train. Um, so you can maybe imagine that's where we are as we look um, at God's word today. My name again is Dean Miller, and I'm delighted to have a chance to continue our series this morning in the Lord's Prayer. If you have a Bible and want to turn to the passage you just heard read, Luke 11, that'd be great. We'll come back there for sure. Um, some of you probably on, in a week, a little under a week, next Saturday may watch part of the, the king's coronation in England. How many of you know that a king is being coronated in England next week? Um, and he will be connected to the Anglican church. It's a little complicated. I don't want to unpack that all this morning. Um, but if you look at the liturgy, they're going to sing the Lord's Prayer uh, during the liturgy. It's actually been posted. You can go online and it, the, all the liturgy's there. And one of the things they're going to do, you have already done this morning. We sang the Lord's Prayer in the first song this morning. So, 
super fun. They're following what we do and to decided to do just what we're doing. So I want you to take a second and ask, uh, answer, ask and answer this question. So what do you care about? Okay, what's something you care about, right? You're passionate about. And then how, how might we know what you care about? Let's say you can easily go, I care about this. How would we know what, about what matters to you? One way we might know, of course, is if we followed you around and saw where you were during the week, right? Either what you do care about or what you wanna care about and maybe aren't able to do as much as you'd like. So you might want to say, oh, I really care about being in shape, physical fitness, but let's say we were with you for a week and you never got a chance to do that for all kinds of reasons. We, we might say, do you really care about that? Because we can't see where you are doing that. But of course, if you care about work, then we'd see you at work. That could be virtual work or office work. If you care about your spouse, we'd probably watch you be with them, intentional with your time. There you'd be with your spouse. Care about worship, you might be, again, here this morning or part of other ways to grow your faith with God this week. If you care about your kids, you probably have been to a practice or taking somebody to a music lesson or a ballet lesson. Anybody piled kids into a vehicle this week to take them to something, right? Or anybody stood on a sideline this week in the rain, right? Amen. This morning, again, we continue our series on the Lord's Prayer, and we're in week three. We had an overview a couple weeks ago and sort of set the stage for the series, which will be until June. And then last week, John Yates came and talked about the first Little words, right? Our Father. And how significant they are, this, this amazing news that the Lord of the universe is our Father. You and I are surrounded by God's love and concern for us. Again, he's God transcendent over the world and God imminent here with us. Stunning news. And like two weeks ago, what I wanna do is, is connect a little bit of the Lord's Prayer and what we're doing in this series with what we consider when we talk about Anglican spiritual formation or Anglican discipleship, what it means to be made into heaven's citizen by being a part of an Anglican church with this church is. Because lots of us didn't grow up Anglican. And it's one of the questions I get often. What does it mean to be a part of this particular church? What does God do to, to make his people that's unique about being Anglican. And a lot of these things aren't just Anglican, right? That we said a couple weeks ago, the Anglican church is not the only church that prays the Lord's Prayer. But there are particular uniquenesses about why we pray and what we think is important. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I asked you to pretend you were Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1540s in England, crafting a way with God for the, the people of England, man, woman, boy, girl, that would focus on intimacy and deep life with the God who loved them. And you had a chance to think about how did you wanna shape those people? What did you wanna to do to help them grow into knowing how much God loved them and be a, really a nation of people transformed by the love of God? And we saw that one of the things he did was create a way for the people in England to be intimate with God through the creation of a prayer book, right? The implications of the Book of Common Prayer that guided worship for the people of England. And we noticed some of those implications were he put it in English, so it was in the vernacular of the people. And he created hours for prayer through the day. Right, if you remember, morning, noon, evening, and compline, that a cobbler or a clergy person could pray and be a part of. Again, man, woman, girl, boy. We noted that the Lord's Prayer was unique because it's in every one of the ceremonies for the four hours. And it's in there because the Lord's Prayer is something you and I could learn if we couldn't read, 
which most of us wouldn't have been able to in the 1540s. But through a repeated oral prayer, our understanding of God and ourselves and the world would be shaped and formed into being like Jesus and his people in the world. Now this, of course, is what we call a set prayer, right? Like something we pray, that the words are given to us. Some words we use, it's called a collect. We prayed the collect for purity to begin our service this morning. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. You might not even know that's what it's called, but that's what it's called. And the set prayer is, of course, in contrast to an extemporaneous prayer where we might say, take time during the prayers and say, we bid your prayers. or We offer you some time to pray concerns on your heart, and you would pray on your own to God. Set prayer is written for us. Extemporaneous, of course, is inviting us to pray our own words. And throughout worship, and not just us, other churches around the world use set liturgies, a guiding of our gathering or praying, be it in a home or a chapel or a cathedral next week in England, different times of year, different situations. And you, we will have a few more of those set prayers during our worship this morning when Richard Crocker leads us through communion and during the prayers of the people. Corky, we use probably some of those. And what's the value in those? Because you might look at those and say, boy, that feels sort of inauthentic. Feels kind of boring. Maybe even formulaic. And if you study church history, and by church history, I mean go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, down through the nation of Israel and into now, you can see people have been concerned that God's people would pray these prayers in a formulaic way. There's all kinds of writings among the Jews for centuries about godly men and women trying to make sure when people prayed the prayers of the Old Testament and since the Old Testament that they pray in them personally, not formulaically. And if you keep coming through church history, you see people concerned about it, and that's how we get renewal movements, right? So just for example, it's how you get the Wesleyan renewal movement in the 18th century. Charles Wesley, John Wesley, George Whitfield, these people gathering to pray personally, not formulaically. It's how you get the Anglo-Catholic movement in the 19th century in the Anglican Church in England. Or even how you get the charismatic renewal in the 20th century all around the world, or even in our country, and even in the Anglican Church. Or even some of the parachurch movements that many of us have been impacted by. InterVarsity, Crusade, Young Life, Navigators. Yet, these set prayers have a really important part in our growth with God, particularly as Anglicans. Think about when you were young and all the things you had to learn when you were young and your parents taught you these things and they didn't really ask for input. They taught you how to hold a spoon. They might have introduced all kinds of vegetables, vegetables to you. Probably many of us thought that some of these were a result of the fall, not of God's goodness. I still wonder why Brussels sprouts exist. Amen. But we would teach you how to do those things, which is what we do in the church. We teach you the Ten Commandments or the creeds or the Lord's Prayer as a way to form you. How many of you can swim? And when you began to swim, you learned basic strokes, right? Freestyle, butterfly, back. Many of you here in Northern Virginia, because it's such a great subculture, have been on swim teams, right? Such a great experience in your communities. And again, they teach you how to swim. Here's the strokes. Now then you grow up and you, you leave that patterned, ordered way of living, that set way, and you go off maybe to college or you get to high school and you think, I don't want to swim anymore. I don't want to be on swim team. 
You're developing your own voice of what you like or not like, and we want you to do that. It's part of growing up, is you learning your own voice of your gifts, your strengths, and it's part of your own voice spiritually, learning what it means for you to engage God. And so we want you to know these set prayers because we know there'll be a place where we want you to, those set prayers impact how you engage God on your own, away from your parents, even away from this church. Find a different church, be in a different college town, join a ministry. Again, develop your own voice. But what you'll find, and what many of the people here who are older and are in an Anglican church around the country and world would tell you, is at some point, you're gonna hit a part of life and you'll be back in the deep end. And whether you've been swimming or not, you are gonna call back on those strokes. If we took you, even if you haven't been on swim team, and we threw you into a lake, you could probably still swim if you've learned how to swim. You might not be very good. Your streamline might be off. You might not be doing butterfly anymore. But you'd be learning your own way to make it through the water. That's what set prayers do for us. They provide an awaking, a structure, a skeleton, then inform them as we go back and down through life. And I can tell you for myself, and I've heard it for many of you, whether you have words for it or not, and I have lots of friends who would say this around the country, is as we've gotten older and walked further in faith and faced some places where it was a lot harder than we thought it could be, these set prayers from wiser, older people have become golden to us in a way they wouldn't have been when I was 20 or 25 or 28. People who've gone before me, because I don't have the energy to make up new words. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I need that colic for purity sometimes. I can confess my sins, but sometimes I just need to start with, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open and all desires are known. And that is a comfort. So we need both kinds of prayers. As Anglicans, we believe in both kinds. Set prayers that seed and grow our own hearts cry. And then also that give us vocabulary when we're out of words or energy or insight or understanding or even belief. Good example would be the phrase we're gonna look at next week. And I'm gonna step just for a second on Skip Ryan, our good friend who's gonna preach next week on his lines a bit. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name is a set way that Jesus is giving us, right? Teaches us to pray. God, may your name be hallowed in all the world. It almost has a sort of advent tint to it. Lord, in break, advent into the world. Change, redeem, save. Make your name holy throughout the world. Make right and orderly your name in every corner of the world. Can you think of a place in the world you would love to see God do that? I can. I bet it took you half a second. So that's the set way, but then you can use that line to pray this week. I do it a lot. Hallowed be thy name, Lord, for friends I have who are struggling with things, or my neighbors, or in Sudan, which is on the cusp of a terrible civil war or for our country and all the struggles we perceive, or for your kids. Lord, hallowed be over this kid. Hallowed be over that kid. I pray it for you all. Hallowed be over this family. Hallowed be over this situation. Do you see how the set prayer frees me and informs me for my own prayer? And again, it's not only Anglican, but it's fundamentally Anglican and what we believe about how God's formed us. This is what's happening in heaven. 
People are saying over and over again to God, holy is your name. Make it holy on earth and use your people. So that's my second commercial for Anglicanism in the series, the last two weeks. Now, turning to our passage this morning, Our Father Who Art in the Heavens. First, a little look at the structure of the prayer that will help us the next few weeks. This prayer is organized brilliantly and simply. First, there's the Our Father. Then there are three petitions directly related to God and his work. And then there are three petitions directly related to us and God's work. Then there's a doxology, which is longer in Matthew. Remember, it's in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. There will be a quiz a couple weeks in on where it is. I'm gonna ask you in a couple weeks. This means that the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus is teaching us, is to begin with who? Us or God? God. That's not just for your information, it's for your transformation. Beginning with God in my understanding of myself, my identity, my orientation, my friendships, my understanding of the world, and my prayer life guides me and cements me in what's ultimately real. Our Father, this informs and shapes how I pray and how I should start both with my set prayers and with my non-set prayer life. You've heard me say before in the several years I've been here as a guest preacher that we begin with a theocentric understanding of the world, God first. Theocentric. This is one of the most slap upside the head things I ever learned in seminary. The first semester somebody mentioned that and I thought, wow, that really is what I believe and is the best, but it shapes so many things. It shapes so much that my wife and I, for our wedding announcements, started the wedding announcement with, in response to God's grace and mercy. You don't have to do that. But if you think theocentrically, you might at least begin to think that way about other things you do. We are theocentric, not anthropocentric. And if you get God right, you get the rest right. If you get God wrong, you get the rest wrong. And Jesus starts us in that simple place with the Lord. And then from that, God our Father, we flow into this line we have this morning, who art in the heavens, and it comes back to my initial question, what is God our Father, care about? What does he care about? And I think the best way to begin to answer that question is to ask, where is God? Again, if you love your kids and I follow you this week and I see you go to practice, they'll cheer for them, it would help me understand what you care about. And if we go to the Bible and we look at Genesis 1, we see where is God? Well, he's in heaven and earth. He's over heaven and earth. And if we follow through the Old Testament, we see he's in the center of his people on earth in the tabernacle, but he's still holy and above them. And then if we go to the temple after Solomon built it, which we looked at in Kings in the winter, we see again he's in the center of his people and over his people. We learn from John 1 that Jesus was the word became flesh, but he's also with the Father before he sent to us, heaven and earth. The Bible over and over teaches that God is in the heavens above and on the earth below. And our line this morning, who art in heaven, is better translated in the Greek, who art in the heavens, which means he is fundamentally everywhere, all around us. He's not God in the heaven in a really nice chair, just kicking it, waiting for the games this afternoon. 
No, he's everywhere, seen and unseen, in the heavens. God, our Father, is near, here with us. This is William Barclay. For Jewish people, their belief in the fatherhood of God, again, where Jesus started our prayer, assured them of the nearness of God. God's glory, his Shekinah glory, is often how we describe it, because he is our father, can also be in the humblest home or in the littlest embarrassed church or in a high school auditorium. This is a lovely quote by a rabbi named Judah ben Simon. An idol is near yet far, but God is far yet, and I would add and, near. An idol is near yet far, God is far yet and near. That'd be a lovely thing to talk about over lunch. What does that mean? And again, what are the idols that I like near that keep God far? God's glory fills the highest heaven and cannot be contained in the earth. And yet that God is your and my father. This again is William Barclay. This means that the prayers that are important in the temple are important, but there's a danger a man might come to think of God as being confined to certain holy places and he might forget that the whole earth was God's temple. This again was one of the dangers for the Israelites when they put so much emphasis on Solomon's temple. So Barclay quotes a Jewish leader, so pray in the synagogue of your city, but if you cannot, pray in the field. And if you cannot pray in a field, then pray in your house. And if you cannot pray in your house, then pray in your bed. And if you cannot pray in your bed, you can still commune with God on your bed and be still. City, field, house, bed, heart. Commune with the God who loves you because he's near. That sounds like Cranmer, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like something from the Book of Common Prayer? Like he would have told the people in England in the 1540s, hey, pray in Southampton, pray in Liverpool. If you can't pray in Liverpool, play on your carriage. If you can't pray in your carriage, pray on your horse. If you can't pray in your horse, pray on that pathway that might be a road. If you can't pray there, pray in your cottage. And then pray in your bed. If you don't have a bread, just be still with God wherever you sleep. Why? Because your Father is in the heavens, near to you, above and around, seen and unseen. Which begs a question, right? If he's near... Why is he near? Why is God near? What does God care about? God is near because he's your father and he cares about you. God is near because he's your father and he cares about you. Again, the Jewish understanding fatherhood means nearness. Where God is, you can learn what he cares about. He cares about you because he's near to you. He's near to you because he cares about you. My parents and sister live in Orange County in California and have been a part at different times and have lots of friends I do who are part of Saddleback Church, Rick Warren's church. Many of you have heard of Rick Warren and that lovely church. And Saddleback has this great tag phrase and bumper sticker. We see it all over cars in Orange County. It says, you matter to God. And I've often thought that is such a brilliant bumper sticker. It preaches all day long. Pull up behind a car in California, which you do often, stuck, and something tells you, you matter to God. What does God care about? You. 
That's why he's in the heavens and the earth. In the heavens, everything matters to him. All we see and all the unseen, he's in it all. God is near and I matter to him. If you took the last few verses of that Luke passage that was read this morning, and you paraphrase it, it might be something like this. You think you can go to lacrosse practice where you are because you care for your kids and grandkids, and I won't go anywhere I please in heaven and earth as your father because I care for you? This is mind-boggling news. It takes a lifetime to grasp it. You're working to grasp it, really, so you're ready for heaven. Now, the reality of God our Father was a huge contrast to the New Testament culture of Matthew and Luke and what was understood in the Greco-Roman world about God's. How do we see gods and their care for people in the Greco-Roman world? Well, think of just the myth of Zeus and Prometheus. Remember, Prometheus did what? He tried to care for people by giving them something. Anybody remember what he gave them? Fire. And technology and civilization culture, more broadly, is how they understood that. He brought them fire to be warm and to see. And how did Zeus respond? Super happy, right? Joyful. Prometheus got his own car. No, he strapped Prometheus to a rock and had eagles eat his liver out day by day and it would grow back at night so the eagles could come back tomorrow. What did Zeus care about? Himself. Or you might look at some of the dominant philosophies in the Roman Empire. Just to pick a couple, there's Stoicism and Epicureanism. For the Stoic, the one essential attribute of God, the one essential attribute of God is apathy. The inability to experience any feeling at all. Because for a Stoic, it means that if I can feel something, if someone else can affect me, then they have power over me. Some of you might know people who try to go through the world this way, all bottled up, because if I give you feeling, if you can affect me with your making me feel bad, then you have power over me. And nobody in a Stoic's mind can have power over God, so he must be emotionless and indifferent, apathetic, not care. For the Epicurean, the essential attribute of God is perfect serenity, not apathy. Perfect calm. But the Epicurean believed that for God to get that calm, he couldn't be involved in the affairs of the world. Because then his affair, his serenity would be gone forever. Raise your hand if you agree with the Epicurean here. So for them, the essence of God would be complete detachment from the world. Not apathy to it, but indifference. A Stoic sees an emotionless God, and the Epicurean sees his utterly detached God's. And into that void and heresy steps Jesus to teach you how to pray. And he starts by telling you to call God your father. And then he reminds you that he's in the heavens. Every place your saddle, your sandal strap feet touch. That's a big contrast. It'd be okay now to dance up and down the aisles with that good news. Maybe some of our own views of God border on the heretical. You might again see, like, think God's functionally deist. He's just withdrawn as well. I don't think he's quite what the Stoics and Epicureans are. I mean, I wouldn't go that far. 
but he's wound the clock of earth and just sort of sitting back again, waiting for the games to start. Not really committed. or in, He really is in heaven in that way of thinking. Or God's just your buddy, right? Affirming your anthropocentric story. Hey God, this is what I'm gonna do. This is what I believe. This is what I think is great. This is what I care about. Just come along and affirm it whenever you want. But again, what we see Jesus teaching us is where God is and who God is and who God cares about. A God in the heavens, your Father. A few weeks ago, the Sunday after St. Patrick's Day, I finished our worship by putting up this quote, this little part of St. Patrick's Blessed Parade, which is a historic and centuries-tested song. It's got lots of verses. This is the chorus, part of the chorus. It's not even the whole chorus. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. At some point, Can't you read that? Don't you read that? And you go, okay, Patrick, I get it. Enough. Jesus is with me because I matter to his Father everywhere in the heavens. We're gonna pray that as part of our dismissal so you'll see it again. What does this mean then for this week? Where is God this week? What does in the heavens mean? It means he's in the 10th grade math quiz or the 11th or 12th grade AP or IB tests. It means he's in the car as you drive or in the car as you're learning to drive or you're the parent in the car teaching your child to drive which will make you really close to Jesus. He's in that meeting you have tomorrow that you're anxious about. He's with your kids and your grandkids, whether you're with them or not. He's in your anxiety and your depression or your discouragement. He's in the world crises overseas in Sudan or the Ukraine or China and Taiwan. He's in your marriage, whether it's going well or not going well. He's with you as you put that kid down for their nap hoping that means they can put you down for your nap. He's with you in your parenting of your kids. For kids, he's with your mom and dad. Kids are here. Have you ever thought about maybe praying for mom and dad, that they would know God's with them? He's at dinner and lunch. He's with you when you're lonely and on your own, on the school bus or the metro. He's in your school hallway or in that hotel room when you're by yourself. He's home during homeschool school. He's at practice. He's there when no one's looking. Our Father, who art in the heavens. Because I matter, because you matter to God your Father, he is near. And because God loves you, you are not alone. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, again, we thank you for the diligence of Matthew and Luke to learn this prayer and to pass it down to us. And it truly is a diamond which has instructed your people for centuries. Every facet is stunning. And thank you again for these simple words that you are in the heavens and what they mean to us. I do pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would know this week that you go with them, that they're not alone. And you're not just with them to be there, you're with them to partner with them, to walk with them, to be the God of heaven and earth, to watch over them, to instruct them, to be present to them as they cry to you. I pray particularly for those of us who might be in a season where you are with us, but we can't tell. Either in our feelings or our thoughts, or you just feel super distant. Would you this week break through that in some way to remind them? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. On earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. On earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us. Forgive us as we forgive the ones who sinned against us. Forgive them and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let your kingdom come. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done on earth as in heaven. Right here in my heart Father, let your kingdom come Father, let your will be done On earth as in heaven Right here in my heart On earth as in heaven Right here in my heart